You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, December 2nd, 2021. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, I go over updates in campus news and discuss children's COVID-19 vaccinations in Larimer County. After that, I explain COVID-19 updates and give information on the Omicron variant, which was identified in California on Wednesday. Then we hear from Anton Schindler about hitting records in his podcast, Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler. Then Coda tells us about threats to the Roe versus Wade decision in the Supreme Court, and we hear from the International Local Music Exchange with Virginia's best local music. After that, Eliza Droder goes over updates in CSU Athletics. To conclude today's show, Coda explains some updates on technology with updates on the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos trial and controversies at Facebook. Let's move right into campus and local news. This is Ellie Shannon with your campus and local news. Colorado State University is nearing the end of their 14th week of classes, and CSU basketball won against the Little Rock Trojans last night. That is their eighth straight win in a row. Make sure to listen to Eliza Droder coming up in just 15 minutes with your latest sports updates. If you miss any part of the show, always make sure, always be sure to shirt, always be sure, oh my gosh. Always be sure to search us on Spotify at KCSU News and subscribe for updates. CSU research research spending hit $446.8 million this year, shattering records. Expenditures grew by 10% in the fiscal year of 2020-21, more than triple the year-over-year rate of the previous fiscal year. Most funds used for research projects are from the federal government, with significant contributions coming from the state government, nonprofit groups, and industry, according to Gary Polakovic of CSU Source News. Some of, the tro- some of the top projects include alternative water sources for agriculture, microbes in the air, COVID-19, and land-grant mission issues. For more information on CSU's research spending, visit source.colostate.edu. Back in April, Colorado State University's Tropical Meteorology Project predicted that it would be an above-average 2021 hurricane season. These researchers were accurate in their prediction, as 21 storms formed this year, being the third most on record. Seven storms and two hurricanes made their way to the United States, with with Category 4 Hurricane Ida being one of them. The tropical Atlantic and Caribbean were warmer than normal during the hurricane season, which enhances Atlantic hurricane formation. The Tropical Meteorology Project has been issuing forecasts for the past 38 years, and to learn more about it, visit source.colostate.edu. Isabel Brown of the Collegian reports that the American Geophysical Union will honor four Colorado State University researchers in Denver. The AGU is a 62,000-member organization of Earth, Atmospheric, Ocean, Hydrologic, Space, and Planetary Scientists formed in 1919. Fewer than 0.1% of its members are asked to be fellows. These new fellows include Elizabeth Barnes, Richard Astor, Paul DeMott, and V. Chandra Chandra Sakar. For more information on these researchers, visit collegian.com. Now on to local news. Now that most children can get vaccinated, Larimer County school districts are hosting end-of-year vaccine clinics. 
Poudre Valley and Thompson School Districts are working with the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment to host mobile clinics, according to Molly Bohannon of the Coloradoan. A parent or guardian must be present for any students that are under 18, and these mobile clinics are also available to the public since they will be off school grounds. Currently, neither district requires students to be vaccinated. To see when these clinics will be functioning, visit coloradoan.com. According to Miles Blumhart of the Coloradoan, many parks in northern Colorado require a special pass to access, but Bel Air Lake, Dowdy Lake, West Lake, and Poudre River will no longer require these. The exempt areas were determined by site-specific factors such as enforcement and public accessibility, according to the commission Blumhart reports. The pass was originally created due to increased visitation disrupting wildlife and impacting habitats. To purchase a pass for next season, visit cpwshop.com. Cash bonds have been set in two cases against a Fort Collins woman who was recently arrested in New Mexico after missing several court attempts, according to Sadie Swanson of the Coloradoan. Susan Holmes was last in court in August for alleged perjury and attempting to influence a public servant. That ended in a mistrial after Holmes was accused of being in contact with a potential juror. After four missed court appearances, Holmes was arrested in Logan, New Mexico. Senior Deputy, Senior Deputy District Attorney Robert Axemaker said, he, said she is a flight risk, which is why her bond is set at $10,000. For more information on this case, visit coloradoan.com. Thanks for listening to the Rocky Mountain Review every Tuesday and Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. And thanks for listening to campus and local news updates. This is Ellie Shannon for KCSU on 90.5 FM. Support for KCSU comes from Nosh Noko, a locally owned food delivery service from local restaurants that want to provide food delivery to the Noko community. Learn more about the Noko Nosh app and how to order food at nokonosh.com. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to COVID-19 updates for Thursday. Colorado State University reports that over 90% of students and staff are vaccinated against the virus that causes COVID-19. Under 2% of students and employees have not yet submitted vaccine records or exemptions. Over 4,400 cumulative cases were reported among students, staff, and faculty at CSU. Vaccine information can be submitted at covid.colostate.edu. Larimer County reports a high-risk score for COVID-19, along with over 46,000 cases. 
deaths reached 384, and the county's seven-day case rate is 238 per 100,000 residents. 74 COVID-19 patients currently remain in area hospitals, and intensive care units report 107% utilization. Larimer County and the Centers for Disease Control report high levels of community transmission for COVID-19. Masks are required in all indoor public spaces in the county, regardless of vaccination status. Larimer County recommends that in high transmission risk periods, residents take the following precautions. Get vaccinated as soon as possible if you are not already. Wear masks, including in private indoor spaces, if members of another household are present. Be sure your mask has a snug fit, and consider wearing a KN95 mask. Postpone all gatherings if possible, and if the event must occur, consider requiring all attendees to be vaccinated or limiting the number of invited households. If the event is indoors, consider moving it outdoors. Monitor your health and get tested for COVID-19 if you have any concerns over exposure or symptoms. The state of Colorado reports over 832,000 cases of COVID-19, along with over 9,500 deaths. 8.7 million vaccines have been administered in the state, with over 3.6 million Coloradans being fully immunized. 75% of eligible Coloradans received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. The CDC reports nearly 49.5 million cases of COVID-19 and over 780,000 deaths as a result of it. About 75% of people over the age of 5 are vaccinated in the U.S. and overall community transmission is high. The first case of the Omicron variant was reported Wednesday in California, and this variant is expected to have breakthrough cases among vaccinated individuals. It was first detected in South Africa due to extensive public health research infrastructure. Information from today's segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the Centers for Disease Control. That's all for COVID-19 updates. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 10th installment of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. Well, we did it. We made it to 10 episodes. It's been absolutely amazing being able to talk about baseball every week so far, and I'm really excited to see what the future holds. Anyway, in last week's episode, we talked about the Hall of Fame ballot and some of the new names that showed up on the ballot, as well as analyzed some players that have been on the ballot before and received enough of the vote consistently to keep their names on the list in hopes to see their name in the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. I also talked about how I felt when it comes to getting steroids and other performance-enhancing drug users into the Hall of Fame as well. Some big names that showed up in that section included Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, and Gary Sheffield, three guys who were known for their incredible bat above all else. And these three got me thinking. Now, all three of these guys all either set a Major League Baseball hitting record, or were at least close to one. So today, I want to break down some of the craziest hitting stats and records that I can find that have happened since the start of the MLB all those years ago. Once again, I want to start this off by bringing up Pete Rose. Now, I mentioned how he was a key part of Cincinnati's famous Big Red Machine because he could literally swing the twig better than anyone else. Pete Rose holds the record for hits with 4,256 hits. Now, although it's only 67 hits above the second place slugger Ty Cobb, Pete Rose had a full 485 hits more than Hank Aaron, who was in third place on that all-time list. Now, 
It definitely helps that Pete Rose played 24 seasons of baseball, getting about 15,890 plate appearances over 14,053 at-bats. So that kind of takes away any possibility of walks and catcher interference and that kind of thing. That means that the Cincinnati, Ohio native finished his career with a .303 batting average. Now, really anyone that can play almost two and a half decades <laughs> at the competitive level and still have an above 300 batting average by the end, I mean, is definitely a special player indeed. But as I mentioned in the last episode, as soon as he stops gambling over baseball, maybe he'll have a chance to make the Hall of Fame. But speaking of batting average, who is the all-time batting average leader? For that, we have to go back to a name that I already mentioned in Ty Cobb. Now Ty Cobb, who was known as the Georgia Peach because he was simply the best around like Georgia Peaches usually are, he was one of the best hitters to ever play the game. I mean, Cobb was a 12-time batting title winner and ended his career with a .3662 batting average, or a .366 officially. But the crazy thing is, is that that was still only .0077 points above the second place on the all-time list, Roger Hornsby. And even more crazy than that, like Rose, Cobb also played for 24 seasons, and had three seasons hitting above 400. Ty Cobb only had one season where he hit below 300, and believe it or not, it was his rookie season. <laughs> Even crazier than that, Cobb only had 11,400 career bats, 2,613 less than Pete Rose had, but still had 4,189 hits. I mean, with only 67 hits in between them, it's crazy to think what kind of numbers Cobb would have had if he had played as many games as Pete Rose did. I mean, the guy was getting over 100 hits per season. <laughs> That's crazy. And not only that, but... Cobb had 295 career triples, which, by the way, is said to be the hardest hit to get in the game of baseball. There's only one player to get more triples than Cobb, and it's actually by another Hall of Famer, Sam Crawford, with 309 triples. So not only was Cobb able to find a gap almost every time that he was up at bat, but he could run hard, and <laughs> boy did he. Another player that Rowe really seemed to find a gap at least once every game was Joe DiMaggio. Now, Joe did something that no one else has even come close to in the many years of the MLB. Joe DiMaggio has the all-time hitting streak record at 56 games in a row. That means that DiMaggio literally got a hit in every game consecutively for 34% of the 1941 season. <laughs> I mean, Joe DiMaggio literally didn't have time to go on a slump. <laughs> now, yes, numbers of hits and high batting averages are fun, but why do people go to baseball games? I mean, would they rather see a ground ball single that slowly rolls by the shortstop, or do they go to see the long ball? Now, I remember watching ESPN's most recent 30 for 30 about Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, when they were racing for first place on the single season home run record in the long gone summer of 1998. And the entire time I was just thinking about the screw that these guys must have had loose to be able to attempt 
anything that crazy. You see, before 1998's unbelievable home run race, the single season home run record was set by Roger Maris at 61 home runs in 1961. Now, Maris claimed the title after he beat out Babe Ruth, who held the record at 60 home runs for about 34 years before he broke it. Now, although both Sosa and McGuire were accused of PED usage, they still hit 66 and 70 home runs respectively, before Barry Bonds, let's be honest, obliterated the record with a 73 home run season in 2001. Now, Barry too was most likely using PEDs when he did it, but as I briefly touched on in the last episode, that's still a really tricky thing to do. <laughs> I mean, hitting anything with that good of contact, that consistently, is extremely difficult. It's hard hitting that many home runs in a year too, because, I mean, after a while, pitchers will stop pitching competitive pitches to you because they're scared that they're just going to give up a home run to you. And not only that, but even if you do get a good pitch, getting the right launch angle without being early or late on the pitch is difficult by itself, as well as being able to read any of the pitches that come your way, whether it be a fastball or a breaking ball or something like that. I mean, it's seriously a really difficult thing to do, and the fact that anyone has 60 home runs without PEDs just in the first place is absolutely incredible, especially with how kind of short the MLB season is. But what about the all-time home run leader list? Well, once again, that record goes to Barry Bonds. He had 762 home runs in his 9,847 at-bats. Now, in other words, about 8% of all of his at-bats ended in a home run. And to put that even more into perspective, 26% of all of his hits were home runs. Now, again, it's hard to say how many of those balls might have just ended up being fly balls without his steroid use, but it's unbelievable the kind of numbers that Bonds was able to accumulate over his 22 years in the league. I mean, there are just so many variables in a baseball player's life that could have affected any of these stats, whether it be injury or a hitting slump or so on. But all of these incredible players that I just listed fought right through it. But what about some of the, well, less than impressive hitting records? I mean, after all, we've touched on some of the most impressive hitting displays in the MLB. But as Newton's third law tells us, for every action, there's an equal or opposite reaction. Now for this, I want to talk about the Mendoza line. Now, the Mendoza line is an idiom coined by Bruce Bochy for a player who is hitting below about a 200 average. Now, most of the time the term is given to position players as pitchers usually don't have enough plate appearances to be considered for a batting average record. Now, the story behind the naming of the Mendoza line is a kind of funny, but also a pretty sad one too. In 1979, the Seattle Mariners had a fairly young shortstop who went by the name of Mario Mendoza. Now, Mendoza only played for about nine seasons in the big leagues, but only had four seasons where he hit above the 200 mark. Now, his teammates, including Bruce Bochy, would call this betting phenomenon, or I guess lack thereof, the Mendoza line, and, 
as time went on, it stuck. Now, as kind of strange and weirdly funny as that is, it has to be a bit awkward to have your name represent one of the, well, less than impressive stats on an MLB record list. Now, if you can recall all the way back to episode one, we talked about Chris Davis and his rather unfortunate hitting record. But if you don't remember, he broke the all-time hitless at-bats record after going 0 for 54, which was a total accumulated over the end of one season and went into the beginning of the next season. But at least for this one, Chris's teammates didn't name the record after him. <laughs> now, as I mentioned this, I ended up looking up Chris Davis's hitting stats for 2020, hoping that there might be a bit of improvement but it seems that Chris Davis's days of hitting everything as a home run are pretty much behind him. In the 52 at-bats that Davis had in 2020, he only had six hits and was well below that Mendoza line with a 115. So we talked about the all-time hits leader, but we didn't touch on the all-time strikeout leader. Now, this one was pretty surprising, at least to me, because frankly, it wasn't who I was expecting at all. Now, when I thought of a strikeout leader, I was thinking of some, you know, little-known hitter that just couldn't pick up a major league pitch for a while. But no, it was none other than the Hall of Famer Reggie Jackson. Now, we're talking about the same Reggie Jackson that had 563 home runs in his career, over 2,584 hits and also stole 228 bases. And to put into perspective his strikeout record, Reggie Jackson actually had more strikeouts in his career than he did hits <laughs> at 2,597 strikeouts compared to his 2,584 hits. That's absolutely crazy to me. I mean, out of his 9,864 at-bats, 26% of the time he struck out. I mean, literally over a quarter of all of Reggie's at-bats were strikeouts. Now, this seriously bewildered me when I found this out, but as I went down the list, I saw more and more big-name power hitters who struck out way more than I ever could have imagined. I mean, remember Sammy Sosa, who hit 609 home runs in his career and was pretty consistently in the running to be the league's home run leader? He had 2,306 strikeouts. Or what about Jim Tomey, the Cleveland Indians great, who had 612 home runs in his illustrious 22-year career? Well, he had 2,548 strikeouts in his career too. I started to notice a bit of a pattern. Many of the players on this all-time strikeout list were also some of the best hitters in the history of the game. Almost all of them were guys that were primarily power hitters that racked up hundreds of home runs and even made the Hall of Fame in most instances. I mean, seriously, as I read through the list, there weren't too many names that I didn't know and weren't household names. And yes, believe it or not, Chris Davis is also on that list. But I think these hitters are really good examples and honestly really good role models to younger hitters. I mean, even the best hitter strike out. And you can't let a strikeout discourage you. 
every single one of these hitters would strike out and then come back to the plate the next at bat with a fresh count, a fresh mind, and probably hit one out. I mean, these players are literally the figurehead of never giving up and just keep trying because you will eventually get a pitch that you can write your name in history with. So, we've spent a lot of time in the past few episodes talking about hitting and hitters and and crazy hitting statistics that the league has seen throughout its history, both good and bad. But we've been ignoring the other side of the ball and the amazing things that pitchers have done as well. So next week's episode, we're going to take a look at two of the most dominant pitching performances the game has ever seen by both Kerry Wood and Randy Johnson, and also break down some of the hardest things to do as a pitcher in throwing a complete game, throwing a no-hitter, and throwing the famed perfect game. Thank you for listening. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Cutta Babcock, and you're listening to National News for Thursday, December 2nd. Due to divided opinions in the United States Supreme Court, legalized abortion promised by the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision is on uncertain ground. According to Nina Totenberg at National Public Radio, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization focuses on a Mississippi law banning abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy while the high court previously heard similar cases and continuously affirmed the decision at Roe v. Wade. The court received three conservative justices under the Trump administration, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, and all of them appear ready to protect the state of Mississippi's decision. Three of the six conservative justices, Gorsuch, Clarence Thomas, and Samuel Alito, are willing to reverse the decision. Chief Justice John Roberts, also a conservative justice, focused on redefining the viability line or when abortion should be allowed, rather than reversing the decision altogether. Justice Kavanaugh appeared to be more interested in letting states choose and reversing Roe v. Wade to allow states to make those decisions individually. The decision on Roe v. Wade isn't expected to come until summer of 2022. A 15-year-old high school student was charged with murder and terrorism after killing four students in a shooting at Oxford High School in Michigan. According to Corey Williams and Ed White at the Associated Press, Ethan Crumbly walked into the high school and began shooting with a handgun Tuesday, just hours after his parents were asked to come to the school and discuss Crumbly's concerning recent behavior. Investigators believe Crumbly already had the gun on school premises when his parents were called. The killed students include a 14-year-old, a 16-year-old, and two 17-year-olds. Crumbly's father owned the gun used in the shooting, and the sheriff said it was bought a week prior to the shooting. 
Sheriff Mike Bouchard, did not disclose the behavior that had caused Crumbly's parents to be called to the school. Crumbly was not given bail and was charged as an adult before being transferred out of a youth detention facility and into a jail. Former President Donald Trump reportedly tested positive for COVID-19 days before debating current U.S. President Joe Biden, meaning that he exposed the then-Democratic candidate to the virus. According to Martin Pengelly at The Guardian, this information came from a new memoir being released by Trump's final chief of staff, Mark Meadows. The Guardian received a copy of the memoir Tuesday, with the book coming out next week with the support of All Seasons Press. Meadows agreed to cooperate with the House of Representatives in their investigation into the January 6th attack on the Capitol Tuesday as well. Prior to attending the presidential debate, both Trump and Biden were required to obtain a negative COVID-19 test within 72 hours. Trump tested positive within that time frame, but received a negative result from a different test. The former president's staff reported him testing positive for COVID-19 on October 2, 2020, claiming that he received the result within an hour of the announcement. On Wednesday, in observance of World AIDS Day, U.S. President Joe Biden updated national AIDS strategies. According to Jarrett Renja at Reuters, the president announced a new AIDS policy focused on additional research into HIV, the virus that leads to AIDS, as well as improved treatment. Additionally, the first update to national AIDS epidemic policy since 2010, the strategy aims to end the strategy aims to end the HIV epidemic by 2030 with a 90% reduction in new cases of HIV by then. The new strategy came in the form of a nearly 100-page document and requested $670 million for implementing the policy. For those unfamiliar with HIV and AIDS in the United States, the first case was identified in 1981. That made this World AIDS Day the 40th year of the epidemic. Prior to the 2000s, HIV quickly evolved into AIDS due to a lack of quality treatment options. Now, people with HIV can become undetectable, meaning that HIV tests cannot detect HIV in their bodies. The new strategy encourages the removal of criminalizing laws relating to HIV transmission and other social issues faced by people living with HIV. I'm Kota Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now, for a taste of Virginia local music with the International Local Music Exchange. What is good, everybody? This is the International Local Music Exchange, sharing local music with the world. We are here with you today from WKNC 88.1 FM HD1 Raleigh, broadcasting out of North Carolina State University. I'm DJ Wolfopotamus. And I'm Big Hoss, and we are excited to bring you the best of North Carolina music today. Up first, we have Zenso Fly and Austin Royale with No Worries. Am I still crying over you? Tears won't stop falling down my face, dying over you. I can't feel my face, I'm wheezing, screaming back at you. Say it isn't true. Say it isn't true. Say it isn't true. Say it is true. I heard you got a new bitch. Why you thinking I'm in over you? Say it's true. 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 So I got a new 
You did your dirt and you threw the gun The dream of you raising with the sun So who else is for me to trust? So who else is for me to lust? You kept my heart and I gave up oath And now that I ran out of drugs When it slipped my wrists and I bless them luck Don't even say it, ain't tryna face it Rather smoke a blunt with the pain I lace it Said I wouldn't face, girl I know a place Out of outer space, we can go and play If you wanna lay, baby hit some shade I ain't here to rage, I'm just here to aid Yes, you are brave, you my ace of spades Just been wanting new, and that's just a flake I don't wanna go, but don't wanna stay I would never quit, but ain't tryna wait I don't wanna go, but don't wanna stay I would never quit, but ain't tryna wait I don't wanna go, but don't wanna stay I would never quit, but ain't tryna wait I don't wanna go, but don't wanna stay I would never quit I heard you got a new Why you thinking I'm in over ya? Say it's all for your corny us Think about me in the morning, huh? Where the matcha shoes for and huh? Why you thinking I'm in over ya? Say it's all for your corny us Think about me in the morning,
But you left me to burn Now there's nothing left but ashes You left never crashes Heartbroken, I could pop a hundred But yeah. still never I'm get past myself. it I'm by myself, no one knows Smoking on the wood while I read about wealth Never needed help, help. Running on my own time Took her at the party, she was blown by high I'm in LA I got nothing left to say I sparkle like a star, so my water Perrier yeah, Looking on to her now, yeah, no more worth now
listening to KCSU Fort Collins at 90.5 FM. Tune in to... What's up, guys? It's Hannah Conda. Listen to my show 1 3 p.m. on Tuesdays. My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. In CSU football news, the team played their final game of this season on Saturday and lost 51-10 against Nevada after Coach Adazio's ejection during the first half. In women's basketball, the team started their season 5-1 with their first loss during this weekend to the 10th-ranked team in the country, Louisville. Their matches this week are against Harvard and UTSA in Arizona. In men's basketball, the team remains undefeated going 7-0, beating UNC most recently. The matches this week are against Little Rock and St. Mary's here at Moby Arena. In women's volleyball, the team was beat by UNLV in the Mountain West Tournament on Thursday, but their season is not over yet. The Rams are hosting the National Invitational Volleyball Championship here at Moby. The first match of the two matches that will be played for the Rams will begin on Thursday at 7.30 p.m. against Houston Baptist, and the second game will be on Friday at 7. In cross-country, the women placed 17th in the NCAA championship to end their season. In women's swim and dive, the team competed in the Phil Hansen Invite. They took home 4th for the first two days and 5th on the final day. If you are interested in student tickets, go to csuram.evenue.net to get tickets for basketball, volleyball, and more. My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. Today I'm joined by Piper Russell from The Collegian to talk about her recent story, which discussed the heart and soul paratransit company. So to start off with, can you tell us a bit about this business and what their overall mission is? So Heart and Soul is a transportation company, and they mostly drive people to things like doctor's appointments and dialysis, and they mostly drive um, maybe older people and people with disabilities who can't drive themselves. So how did this business found out that they were needed in northern Colorado? Um, so the founder, Jason Brabson, um, started out working for a different transportation company and just kind of noticed a need for um, just compassionate and reliable transportation for people to go to medical appointments. And then why is it important that disabled people and those seeking medical service have a specific non-emergency option for medical transportation? Um, just going to things like doctor's appointments and dialysis can be stressful for those people, especially if they can't drive themselves or are struggling to get to those appointments. So it's definitely important for them to have an option to get to things like appointments. All right. And then how do drivers from Heart and Soul differ from rideshare services in terms of punctuality and training? Um, so things like communication and punctuality and training are very important to Heart and Soul. Um... They are always on time and work really hard to make sure that no one has to wait at appointments. And um, yeah, they just definitely focus on being reliable for their customers. 
And then how can people reach out to Heart and Soul Paratransit and what should they know before calling? Um, yeah, so they can just call to schedule rides. Um, I believe you're supposed to schedule 48 hours in advance of the ride you'll need. And I also believe that you can um, schedule a ride for two weeks out. All right. Thank you so much. Again, that's Piper Russell from The Collegian, and you can check out that story at collegian.com. To make an appointment with Heart and Soul Paratransit, you can call 970-690-3338. Again, that phone number is And we're back on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins with the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Kuda Babcock, and you're listening to Tech News for December 2nd. Elizabeth Holmes, the former CEO of biotech startup Theranos, shared memories of the alleged abuse she faced by Sunny Balwani, her former romantic and business partner. According to Michael Leedke at the Associated Press, she discussed her experiences while being questioned by prosecutors Tuesday. Holmes and Balwani faced criminal fraud charges after lying to investors about the success of Theranos and their connections to pharmaceutical companies. Prosecutors asked Holmes to read her private texts to and from Balwani aloud. Holmes claimed that Balwani exploited her previous trauma to control all aspects of her life, including her diet. Balwani's attorney denied her allegations against him, and during her questioning, she claimed to have forgotten many key incidents at the time of, uh, at, during her time at Theranos due to trauma during their relationship. Facebook's parent company Meta removed over 600 pages and accounts run by a Chinese state network spreading COVID-19 misinformation. According to Shannon Bond at National Public Radio, Meta also removed accounts supporting Hamas and other terrorist organizations across the globe. The Chinese-run accounts posted false claims over the summer that the United States pressured the World Health Organization to claim that China was responsible for the COVID-19 virus. Meta said that the accounts involved in sharing false news like this story included both real and fake accounts, and they would comment on posts with similar statements at the same time to influence readers. Frances Haugen, who previously testified to Congress about unethical practices at Facebook, testified again to provide solutions to problems she previously addressed. According to McKenna Kelly at The Verge, Haugen gave feedback on newly introduced tech reform measures, which The Verge says would remove a shield from liability that tech companies like Facebook have used to avoid being held liable for harm. House Democrats expect, wait, House Democrats expect the law reforms will be on the 2021 or 2022 agenda as a priority. Three bills are, are involved in the reform and focus on harmful algorithms. That's all for Tech News. I'm Coda Babcock, and now for the weather. Today we saw warm and sunny skies with a high of 71 and a low of 37. Friday cools down to a high of 60 with a low of 30 with mostly sunny skies. Saturday clouds will leave the area and we'll see a high of 62 with a low of 40. Sunday will be partly cloudy and a high of 54 with a low of 22. Monday, you can expect mostly cloudy skies with cold temperatures and a high of 48 with a low of 32. Tuesday, you can expect similar skies with a high of 44 and a low of 24. And for Wednesday, you'll have to tune in Tuesday from 4 to 5 in the afternoon or listen on Spotify by searching and subscribing to KCSU News. I'm Kuda Babcock, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now.
We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, Stephanie Keel, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Lindsay Johnson, Eliza Droder, Samuel Bailey, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.